are listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode four. Season six is, is well underway now, and today we're going to be talking about treason. Ohio versus treason is the episode, a term you might have heard in the news lately. You look at the Capitol riots of January 6th. I thought those were treasonous acts of people who stormed the Capitol um, and tried to prevent the counting of the electoral votes and the peaceful transfer of power. That was a treasonous act to me. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. But today we'll be looking at two of the most famous instances of treason. The very first trial of the century in this country, the treason trial of Aaron Burr, the founding father. A really incredible story that, that I started hearing more about after the Capitol riots. Um, but we'll talk with some great authors and historians about that. And our second story today will be about Axis Sally, a woman who grew up here in Ohio, Mildred Gellers, and how she became the American voice of Nazi Germany. It'll be a World War II story. Um, and it's also the subject of a new movie that just came out this week called American Traitor, The Trial of Axis Sally, starring Al Pacino as Axis Sally's lawyer in her, her treason trial. We'll talk with author Richard Lucas about his great book, Axis Sally, in the second half of the episode. Uh, feel free to go and rate and review the show, guys. That helps us so much. So if you're on iTunes, that's where you listen. You can just scroll down on your phone, computer. Literally takes less than a minute to support the show that way. We're not asking for your money, and we'll keep pumping out the strong content. But go rate and review us. Share the show on your Facebook or Twitter. Twitter's at OhioVTheWorld or on your Instagram. And, and also a reminder, we have our great OhioVTheWorld t-shirts for sale on our website. Or just email us at OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com. $15 free shipping, super soft from our friends at Mysterioso Rock Art. They make great t-shirts. You can go check them out uh, and you will not be disappointed. And today we'll focus on two of the country's most infamous treason trials. Both have origins in the Buckeye State. We'll be talking about the Burr Conspiracy involving the former Vice President, Founding Father Aaron Burr in the early 1800s. An incident, like I said, was certainly on the lips of journalists and historians back in January. Our guest is the amazing author and historian David O. Stewart. Uh, he even noticed an, a pretty sizable uptick in sales of his 2011 book, American Emperor. That'll be the story we tell in the first half of today's two stories, is what Burr did after he shot Hamilton. He somehow hurt his legacy even more. Did Aaron Burr attempt to carve out a new country out of the western territories of the U.S.? What exactly was he up to? We'll travel to Marietta, Ohio, and nearby Blennerhassett Island State Park, where much of this scheme was hatched. The second half will flash forward 140 years to Nazi Germany, tell the story of Mildred Gellers and how a struggling actress from a small town in the corner of Northeast Ohio, she attended Ohio Wesleyan University, how she became Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis' favorite propagandist, and she'd earned the nickname across the world of Axis Sally. And this is a story I knew nothing about until I read Richard Lucas's book, Axis Sally. Uh, again, really cool, really cool book about how a small town failed actress from Ohio would become the American voice of Nazi Germany. And she'd stand trial for treason. Spoiler alert, only one of these two, Aaron Burr and Mildred Gellers, will be acquitted of their treason charges. The other was convicted. But without further ado, 
Let's give aid and comfort to our enemies, because it's episode four, Ohio versus Treason. Our story today starts on a hill in Weehawken, New Jersey, just across the Hudson from what would become Midtown Manhattan. It's July 11th, 1804. We've all heard the story of the infamous duel between Alexander Hamilton and then-Vice President Aaron Burr, longtime rivals. Burr shoots Hamilton in the stomach, and Hamilton dies the next day. Dueling was certainly a major part of American society still at that point, but the event of the Vice President shooting and killing the former Secretary of the Treasury and war hero Hamilton, it shocked the nation. Two founding fathers. Our story today picks up the Aaron Burr story, where many leave it on the dueling grounds in Weehawken. Our first guest is one of my favorite historians, David O. Stewart, author of a great book, uh, Impeached, that we read for our episode on the first presidential impeachment with Andrew Johnson. His new book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, we're reading right now. It's been fantastic. And the 2011 masterpiece, American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. It's from Simon & Schuster Publishing, and we talked to David about Aaron Burr's situation after the killing of Hamilton in the summer of 1804. Burr's not in a great place uh, in 1804. He's uh, on the outs with the president of his party, Jefferson, and he's just run for governor of New York and got beat by somebody he thought he, he, would, he could defeat. And then he picks the fight with Hamilton, uh, and, which results in the duel. There's no question that it was an intemperate thing to do for both men. Um, and ironically, it turned out badly for both. Hamilton's problem is obvious, but Burr's is almost as bad. He is quite swiftly indicted twice uh, in New York and in New Jersey for murder, and he takes it on the lam. The vice president of the United States uh, is on the run from the law. He lands in Georgia and hides out at the estate of a friend. After a few months, he becomes persuaded that he can make it back to uh, the Capitol uh, in Washington and not be arrested. And so he does, and he resumes presiding over the Senate, which is the only duty the vice president had at the time. And he does that for several months, even presides over an impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice, which is unsuccessful, Samuel Chase. But he's done politically. (laughs) You know, he, he... he already had two strikes against him, uh, with Jefferson not liking him at all and losing the New York race. And now he's an indicted murderer. Uh, it, it's it's hard to run for office with, with that baggage. Aaron Burr was played by the amazing actor Leslie Odom Jr. in a little musical called Hamilton. It's popular on Broadway a few years ago. You may have heard of it. You can check Leslie Odom out, too. He's fantastic. And One Night in Miami, he plays Sam Cooke in that movie about a night between Cooke and Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali. Uh, really thought it should have been nominated for Best Picture. But in all seriousness, Linwell Miranda's Hamilton musical really took the country by storm. It's the most popular Broadway production of my adult life, certainly. People just went crazy for it. And it made Aaron Burr a household name again. The Hamilton play was based on Ron Chernow's 2004 book Hamilton, which found itself on the New York Times bestseller list in recent years thanks to the to the musical. We asked our guest, uh, David O. Stewart, the author of American Emperor, really the best book there is about Aaron Burr, 
if it you know he noticed any increased book sales and he also tells us that he owes a, an uptick this year for a much different reason the hamilton show which i am a huge admirer of does recognize the interesting relationship and almost mirror image relationship between the two guys and is sympathetic to burr at some level yeah that um he he wasn't a monster and i think that was good i did see a bit of an uptick probably not as much as ron chernow got for hamilton (laughs) uh and uh, that's not a surprise but I, i have to say one of the puzzles for me is since our recent um, unpleasantness at the Capitol on January 6th, I have seen another uptick. Um, and people are finding the book. I, I can only guess that they're wondering, gee, what is treason? And, you know, have we had episodes like this before and, and are asking those questions? The time we're going back to today, it's a much different United States. We're in the first decade of the 1800s. Ohio has only been a state for two years. The U.S. population is only about 6 million. There's no railroad, no telegraph, no canals. It's all horses and boats. The West, places like Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, that's the West now. Ohio's the newest state. Indiana's still a decade away from statehood. There's really three parts of the country, the, the East, the South, and the West. They're all very different, but especially the East and the West. It takes weeks to travel from Tennessee to New England. Their interests, their peoples are very different. Many in the West don't see the use of a federal government. They don't feel like they're part of the United States. They don't really see any signs of the federal government in their lives. It's this feeling among Westerners that Burr would try to exploit in his expeditions. But even President Jefferson in 1804, writing a letter about a movement in New England for secession, and he says, and this is odd, and I quote, whether we remain in one confederacy or form into an Atlantic and Mississippi confederacies, I believe not very important to the happiness of either part. We asked David O. Stewart about that puzzling quote from a president and the connection or disconnection between the East and the West in the early years of our country. Uh, That's very true. I I find that quote baffling. And there was another one in the letter that was equally baffling. It's almost blasé. Um, You know, go ahead and chop up my country, which seems at the very least contrary to his oath <laughs> to preserve and protect the Constitution. And it's certainly true. The West uh, is hard to get to. You have to go over the mountains. Um, there's no water transportation that works, and that was the best transportation around in the early 19th century. The trade that they had, their economic livelihood, di- didn't turn on the what they called the coastal states. They were very much focused on the Mississippi because that was their water transportation. You know, go down the Ohio River or the Tennessee River, get to the Mississippi, and then down to New Orleans and, frankly, into the Caribbean, which was a great market for them, for their agricultural produce. Their orientation was really away from the existing states of the Union. And that created... That economic relationship created distance, the, just the communications. It took three weeks to get news from the East right. Coast to the West. And it was a very different place. In the West, it, it was raw. They didn't have a lot of civilizing influences with church and schools. Um, they didn't have enough women. And uh, so you've got guys, and you know guys don't do well in that sort of setting. 
Um, it can be violent. Um, they were subject to, they had bad relations with many of the tribes, the Indian tribes, and that created more violence. So, uh, and they desperately wanted to be protected from their own, the, the fights they themselves were picking with the tribes. So it, it was a very, it had a very different feel. And they sometimes identified with the United States and other times not so much. Our story connects to Ohio through the pioneer city of Marietta in southeast Ohio, believed to be the first permanent settlement by the U.S. in the Northwest Territory in 1788, that would have been. And you can read the master American historian Dave McCullough's excellent book from a couple years ago, The Pioneers, to learn more about the founding in the early years of Marietta. But the city was an important town on the Ohio River at the confluence of the Ohio and the Muskingum. Our next guest is a historian at the Ohio River Museum and Campus Marshes uh, Museum in, in Marietta. Uh, Bill Reynolds joins us, and Bill talks to us about early Marietta, Ohio, the city that Aaron Burr would come visit after he leaves the vice presidency in 1805. There's some arguments with another city here on the Ohio River, um, Steubenville, that they actually came first. So Marietta was the first legal organized settlement in the Northwest Territory. In 1792, David Heckewilder, the Moravian missionary, came to Marietta. And I say this is so you can get a sense of population. He said Marietta was a thriving city of two, of a population of two to three hundred. By the time Burr gets here, things have grown, but not in proportion to, let's say, Cincinnati, which was a, a enormous thriving city. Aaron Burr is out as vice president when Jefferson goes for re-election in 1804. Jefferson didn't like Burr. Burr was an indicted murderer, after all. He had tried to, you know, take the, the presidency in 1800 from, from Jefferson. It was obviously very close. Back then, the vice president was the person who finished second in the election. Can you imagine if that was the case now? But his political career, it seemed over. Instead of returning to New York and resuming his law practice, he decides to try his luck out west. On May 5, 1805, he arrives in Marietta, Ohio, to much fanfare. A lot of that was because of his, like, P. Diddy-style party boat he arrived on, but our next guest, Craig Piles, is the superintendent of Blennerhassett Island State Park. He talks about Burr's arrival and how he seeks out Harmon Blennerhassett, the wealthy immigrant and owner of a beautiful mansion on an island in the Ohio River near Marietta. We'll talk about Blennerhassett as he's a key figure what would become the Burr conspiracy. Pretty much had his own personal party barge is what I like to describe it. So he's coming down the river on his barge. It was 60 feet long, 14 feet wide. It contained four apartments, a dining room, a kitchen with a fireplace, and two additional bedrooms for the crew. Traveling the Ohio River, if you come down in early spring, with the current, you can drift about eight miles an hour on the current. So that's one of the reasons why he came down in the spring. He first landed in Marietta, met some of the political figures, but he kept hearing about this guy, Blennerhassett. So he jumped back on his boat and came down to Marietta, or came down to Blennerhassett Island. After he left, Burr started corresponding with Harmon, enticing him with the plans on how to increase his fortunes and attain, you know, a more exalted position of usefulness and honor. Essentially what Burr did with Harmon. He promised him that once the new territory was established, Harmon would fill the position of minister to Britain. August of 1806, 
Burr visited the island a second time with his daughter. And again, they stayed on the island at this point in time. The Blenner Hassets were there and they had many dinner parties and throughout a course of a couple of weeks. And Aaron Burr had spent quite a bit of time in Marietta. Burr was welcomed by most of the residents. Bill Reynolds from the Ohio River Museum would tell us about Burr's time in Marietta and why he would have enjoyed the city in 1805-1806. It was a real city in the unsettled West. Bill Reynolds talks to us about Burr's time living it up in Marietta. Some people had liked to say other historians have called Marietta at that time the, the Hollywood on the Ohio. Why do they call it that? The Marietta was, was a cultural center at that time. Um, the, the education levels of the people who lived here were, were much higher. The social activities were a little more frequent at that time. We see brick houses starting to be constructed. So when Burr got here, he would he would see this, and of course there were there were ladies here too. His popularity was was sort of split because what's happening in 1805 is you have the Jeffersonian Republicans and you have you have the old school Federalists, and then you have those that didn't like the fact that that Burr had killed Hamilton, and then there's others that thought that he was a very intelligent man and. And, and worthy of their attention. So Burr really enjoyed the, the company of, of intellectual type people here and, and many that supported him. There were several dances that were held um, in his honor. They were called Burr Balls. in Ohio for another reason. He's recruiting men for an expedition. He's vague on the details, but they'd be heading south, southwest, and he's a celebrity in places like Marietta, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, these cities that he visits. David O. Stewart, the author of the outstanding uh, Simon & Schuster biography of Aaron Burr, American Emperor, talks to us about Burr coming out west. Yeah, he is a celebrity when he goes west, and, and west is just over the Appalachians. It's, it's not, you know, out in the Wild West of, of uh, Western movies, he meets with anyone of influence and of significance and position. He concentrates on former Continental Army officers. He had a distinguished military career. He was well regarded as a as a soldier. Uh, he'd been very young. He was 19 years old when he became a captain in the army. The men who had been his fellow officers are, are men in position at this time. So he certainly cultivates them. And an interesting twist is it's actually their sons that he yeah. really focuses on because they are young and frisky and ready for adventure in a way that their dads probably are not. And he recruits a bunch of them. Enter into our story Harmon Blennerhassett. Harmon was an English noble. He inherited his family's vast fortune in his 20s, well-educated in London and Dublin, Ireland. But politically, he ends up on the wrong side of a failed revolution by the Irish. And even more problematic was his marriage to his niece, Margaret, which, you know, even in 1790s, that was frowned upon. He moved to America to start a new life, and he went west and found himself in Marietta, Ohio. He bought a couple hundred acres on an island in the Ohio River, just across from Belpre now, Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, and he built a, just a magnificent mansion. 
uh, the best mansion of this entire area of Ohio, maybe in the entire West. And it was renamed Blenner Hassett Island. Harmon and Margaret had giant gardens. Uh, they're having parties. They're living their best life. It's technically in Virginia, so they actually have slaves. The, the people in the story of the Burke conspiracy, you're not going to find yourself rooting for most of them. Of course, the island was technically part of Virginia. As Ohio wasn't even a state when they moved there, Craig Piles, who's the superintendent of the now Blennerhassett Island State Park, it's a beautiful state park now, you can take a boat trip out to it, Craig tells us about Harmon Blennerhassett and the island Eden that bears his name. And they heard about the western frontier in America. And at that time, it was pretty much the Ohio Valley. That was the Wild West in America at the time. So then in 1797, they made their way to Pittsburgh, floated down to Marriott, Ohio, to begin their new life, to get away from the stigma of the mar marriage and the political difficulties. Blennerhassett Island is located in the Ohio River. It's about a mile and a half below Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, if you're familiar with the area, it lies just across from Belpre, Ohio, and it's about 13 miles south of Marietta, Ohio. And the Blennerhassett, you got to remember, he came from a rich family, so he was used to having comforts. Uh, the family was used to hosting parties. So when they made their way to Marietta, they found what they were looking for. They heard about property in the Ohio River. And you have to remember, at this point in time, the Ohio River and the islands in the Ohio River were considered part of Virginia. So being part of Virginia, not Ohio, allowed them to have slaves. So they had, it depends, seven to 12 slaves. This afforded them more time for their parties, for their luxuries. The house was built between 1798 and 1800, but the house was three stories tall, 7,200 square feet. It was an Italian Palladian style in the shape of a horseshoe. Aaron Burr would visit Blennerhassett Island three times, but he was traveling all around the entire West, Pittsburgh, down the Ohio to the Tennessee River, all the way to Louisiana Territory. He's making news, and a lot of the rumors about are what is he up to in the West? Why is Burr traveling around on this luxury riverboat, recruiting young men for a quote-unquote expedition? Why would no one talk about it? Burr had plans, lots of plans. Not concrete plans, but he's meeting with men like Andrew Jackson, men like General James Wilkinson, the head of the U.S. Army out west, and a very shady character that we'll discuss. But the rumor that began sweeping the country was that Burr was raising an army to break off the Louisiana Territory from the United States, start his own country. Obviously with him, presumably, as the leader, hence David's book title, American Emperor. Or maybe he'd be conquering Spanish lands like Texas or Florida. No one knew for sure, and that includes Burr. We asked David O. Stewart just what the hell was Burr up to in 1805 and 1806 out west. Well, you asked the $64 question, which is what was he really doing? And Burr was a secretive man. Uh, one of his famous quotes that I love was, things written remain, and he didn't think that was a good thing, and so he didn't write much down. And it's pretty clear from the accounts of the people he was recruiting that he told different things to different people, depending on what he thought might work. So with somebody like Andrew Jackson, who was a militia leader in Tennessee, very influential guy, I don't think he ever talked to him about sort of breaking off from the United States. That, that would have been a, a, a dumb move. With General Wilkinson, I think he probably did. 
because Wilkinson was up from almost anything. And I have used the analogy you mentioned, which is the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild Ones, where he's the head of a motorcycle gang that, yeah. in the 50s and takes over this little California town in a sort of a quaint way. And then, you know, the sweet young thing says to Brando at halfway through the movie, you know, so Johnny, uh, what are you rebelling against? And Brando sighs and looks at her under his heavy-lidded eyes and gives a little shrug and says, what do you got? <laughs> and, you know, that feels like Burr. He, he's kind of up for anything. You know, if it involves conquering territory and making it part of the United States, that would be cool. He would be a hero and maybe could become president sometime. If it involves conquering Florida and Mexico and making a new new empire, gee, that would be even better. If it just involves sort of becoming a hero out west and settling a new territory, well, that's not as interesting. But, well, it, you know, it beats hanging around on the East Coast and being nobody. Uh, so I think he's willing to play it by ear. And, you know, people have written about this, choose upsides by and large. There are writers who say, he was completely innocent. He, he meant no harm. He was just out there trying to, you know, <laughs> raise crops, which is, I find hard to believe. He, you know, he was uh, the least agricultural of the founding fathers. Uh, and there are those who think he was absolutely in it to create, uh, to become Emperor Aaron I. I think he would have been fine with that outcome. But I, I think he was... He wasn't going to get boxed in. He was going to play the cards as they came out and see what he could get away with. Burr's travels and intrigue, they're making news out west, and, and that news is spreading back to the east, back to New York and D.C. The former vice president is up to something in the western territories. The president, Thomas Jefferson, mostly decides to do nothing about it. We asked David Stewart about Jefferson's response to the rumors of this Burr conspiracy. Yeah, it it is a, a puzzle, and it is... The other great question is, you know, why did Jefferson sit on his hands so long? Uh, it was in the newspapers. The Philadelphia paper had an early story about it. There was a Kentucky paper that had a multi-part series about it. Yeah. Uh, Jefferson's getting letters from folks out west saying, geez, look out for Burr. He's up to no good. Um, and Jefferson doesn't really do anything. Uh, and, you know, there are interpretations. And frankly, I can't pick one. Uh, it was hard to get at Burr. He was out west, and you know the instruments of government and social control were limited at the time. Jefferson may well have thought, well, I'll just give him enough rope to hang himself. And he may also have thought, you know, this is so outlandish, he's just not going to get away with it. People aren't going to join him. But Jefferson never wrote why he didn't do anything for so long. It was a very cagey move. Uh, one I think not many politicians would have adopted. There are some real actions Burr is taking to build up an army for his quote-unquote expedition. A lot of that is being focused on Blennerhassett Island in the Ohio River. Burr has convinced Harmon Blennerhassett, this rich, you know, English noble, living in this mansion, uh, you know, across from Belpre, Ohio, just, just southwest of, of Marietta. He asked him to fund a navy for him. Craig Piles from the Blennerhassett Island State Park uh, talks to us about what Harmon Blennerhassett was doing as part of the Burr incident. And he was all in on helping Aaron Burr and his growing army. He was looking for Blennerhassett, basically uh, somebody to finance. 
Now, the island wasn't the only point that Burr was using as a rallying point. He had a recruiter in Pittsburgh. He had a recruiter at the island. He had a recruiter station, lack of a better word, in Kentucky and then one in Tennessee. Blenner Hassett was in charge of gathering boats for a flotilla to get everybody down the river. So he went up to Marietta, Ohio. He ordered 15 boats. Uh, the capacity of the boats, they were trying to estimate they wanted to carry 500 men. Um, also in Marietta, from the merchants, they ordered $2,000 in provisions. And they wanted every, all the boats to be delivered by December 9th. Uh, the provisions that they ordered consisted of pork, bacon, flour, kiln-dried cornmeal, whiskey, and other small articles. Harmon also wrote a series of letters that appeared in the Marietta paper. In the essays, he stated the Western states would be at an advantage to separate from the Atlantic states. Burr and Blenner has to commission 15 ships, and that's a straight-up Navy for whatever they've got planned. Those ships are being built along the Muskingum River in Marietta, Ohio. There's actually a burgeoning shipbuilding business in Marietta at the time. It seems kind of odd as inland as Ohio was. Historian Bill Reynolds talks to us about why the shipbuilding industry worked in Marietta at the turn of the century. Blennerhassett has Joseph Barker, Marietta resident, building the ships for him. Uh, but all these shipbuilding and the rumors of a military expedition, it finally caused the Ohio government to act. They began to call out the militia to stop these boats and these men involved with Burr. The Burr conspiracy begins to face some government resistance and some military resistance in Ohio. It's this resistance that would put the entire expedition in jeopardy. Yeah, shipbuilding here was an unbelievable business because it was so far inland. And the first sailing vessel that came out of, out of Washington County when it landed in France, its papers were questioned. It's like, this is impossible. This is the <laughs> registry's not, no, this is null and void. No, it's not true. Um, up until Jefferson's Embargo Act, many of the early settlers had been shipbuilders on the East Coast. Plus you have virgin forests that provided wood. That, and then you have merchants that invest in this shipbuilding thing so they can put their goods on, take them down river, sell them at a pretty good profit. And then that profit is buys goods like in the West Indies or France or wherever the ship happened to go, China. And, uh, and then they bring those back to the East Coast and sell them. And so it was, it, was, it was hugely profitable. Joseph Barker is, I don't particularly think he was a shipbuilder. He was an architect. At that time, in 1805, there were three boatyards in Washington County on the Muskingum River. Barker and Blannerhassett obviously knew each other because Barker was the architect of the Blannerhassett home. Uh, and probably the overseer of the work. And of course, Blannerhassett paid for the boats out of his own pocket, money he never recovered. And of course, it was a loss. These boats are, are leaving to go down to the island, to, you know, to gather up and, and head on this expedition. Joseph Buell calls out the militia and uh, confiscates the boats. The, uh, the militia set up a little stockade-like at the uh, confluence of the Ohio in the Muskegon Rivers on the Marietta side. And they had a cannon and they'd stop every single boat that was coming down river and searched it to make sure that none of the people on board were part of the Burr so-called incident or that they were trying to get, you know, arms, munitions and supplies to that expedition.
Burr's ace in the hole for this entire operation was General James Wilkinson, the governor of the Louisiana Territory at one point, the commanding general of the ragtag U.S. Army out west. But Wilkinson is not a man to be trusted. He's working with Burr on this plan. The idea was Burr and his men would come to Louisiana, and Wilkinson's army forces would join him and move against the Spanish in Texas. That was one of Burr's major plans. But as his plans become more and more public, Wilkinson, in classic Wilkinson style, double-crosses it. And he actually sends a coded letter, the cipher letter, as it became known, uh, a letter sent to him about starting the operation from Burr. He sends it to President Jefferson personally. David O. Stewart provides us with the story of General James Wilkinson. Yeah, to call Wilkinson a scoundrel is to sort of flatter him. Um, He was just a a, a terrible person. One of my favorite quotes about him was he he was court-martialed three or four times and and never convicted and uh, was by no means a, a very good soldier. He became senior general of the army largely because nobody else wanted to be part of it. I mean, it was a ragtag tiny little army. But it was said of Wilkinson that he had never won a battle or lost an investigation. Um, and, you know, that that's the guy you're dealing with. Um, he was, in fact, a Spanish agent. Uh, the government of Spain paid him money. And in return, he wrote reports about American military readiness, which was laughable, and American politics, which he didn't know much about. So you could question whether Spain got value for their money, but they absolutely paid him. I mean, Wilkinson was great at flim-flamming anybody. He then clearly joins Burr and is scheming with Burr for at least a year. They have several meetings. Burr clearly is relying on Wilkinson to bring the army and join him in the expedition when he reaches uh, New Orleans and Louisiana. And then at the last minute, Wilkinson backs out of that. So he's double-crossed the United States with Spain. He's double-crossed the United States by scheming with Burr, and then he double-crosses Burr. (laughs) And you can finally tell that he was in the Burr scheming because when he finally double-crosses Burr, he goes to New Orleans and he arrests every one of Burr's Confederates there. And the reason he can do it is he knows them. President Jefferson, after getting the letter from Wilkinson, hearing back from an agent, John Graham, after his investigation, Uh, He released a proclamation condemning any such actions out West. Burr is brought before a grand jury for this conspiracy in in Kentucky. The charges don't stick, but any element of surprise for Burr is lost. The national sentiment kind of begins turning against him. David Stewart talks about the Jefferson administration's response to Burr's scheming. As Harmon was out recruiting volunteers, they started showing up at the island. And the island started to resemble a recruiting station. Recruits were promised $12 a month, land at the end in the Western Territories. From the town of Belpuri, you can look over, you can see the island. It's in plain view. Uh, Belpuri actually has a plateau that sets up a little higher, so you're actually kind of looking down on the island from Belpuri. So you can see everything that's going on. Ohio became involved and the people on both sides of the river started to become alarmed at the amount of men assembling on the island reports, gossip, misinformation, real information was getting out. Reports were sent to Washington, to Richmond, and to the Ohio Capitol. At this time, it was in Chillicothe. And based on these reports, Thomas Jefferson, the president, sent John Graham, secretary of the Orleans Territory, west to discover what was going on. 
President Jefferson sends John Graham, this man from the Louisiana Territory, to investigate just what exactly Burr's up to. He travels to Marietta, and he meets with Harmon Blennerhassett, Burr's financier of the expedition. And he tricks Blennerhassett, I guess, into thinking he's on his team. You ever, you know, have someone tell you a secret they weren't meaning to, they weren't supposed to tell you? Well, John Graham gets the entire plot out of Blennerhassett. He's President Jefferson's guy. Graham goes to Chillicothe, which is the capital, and gets the Ohio legislature to call out the militia to stop this army from gathering, stop them from leaving from Marietta and Blennerhassett Island. The Virginia militia does the same. Armed American troops begin moving in on Blennerhassett Island, and they're closing in fast. Yeah, it's impressive how little he does that ends up working. He does... Uh, he issues a proclamation. Uh, he doesn't name Burr. I think it might be sort of humiliating to n- say that out loud that your former vice president is scheming against the government. So yeah. he just says they're, they're bad people out in the West, uh, and nobody out there should have anything to do with them. And, you know, everybody out there knows it's Burr because he's been around. And then he sends an agent, one guy, a fellow named John Graham, who'd been in the Louisiana government down in New Orleans. So he knew people in the West. And clearly was a man of uh, vigor and uh, resourcefulness. And uh, Graham sort of tracks Burr through the West and fires up people against him. He speaks against him. He cools off some of the people who wanted to join him. Uh, You referred to a Kentucky grand jury. Uh, Graham really goads the Kentucky prosecutor who, who didn't like Burr. Um, to convene a grand jury uh, into Burr's scheming. And although they don't bring charges against him, they release him, it it doesn't bode well for the expedition that the authorities are after him. And he ultimately gins up a second grand jury down in uh, Mississippi, in Natchez. Graham was was pretty effective. And, and, you know, I'll come back to the point. It's easy to say, and I was always tempted to say, you know, Jefferson was just incredibly flaccid and slow. But it worked. John Graham, he arrived in Marietta in the middle of November, and he actually met with Harmon in Marietta. And Harmon thought that Graham was there to join the cause. Harmon laid out the entire plan to Graham. Graham knew everything. Graham actually tried to dissuade Harmon from going through with the expedition. But at this point in time, Harmon was all in. He had money invested. He wasn't backing out. So Graham went to Chillicothe, where the Ohio legislature was in session. He gave his findings to the legislature, Governor Tiffin, at this time. The legislature's and Governor Tiffin closed the doors and had a vote. They uh, passed an act to enable the executives to suppress and defeat the alleged expedition under the command of Major General Buell. The local militias were organized in Marietta and orders to seize the flotilla that were being built up on the Muskingum River just up Marietta and collect the provisions being gathered. The militias seized the boats. They seized the provisions in Marietta within weeks of them being delivered. The militia was also given powers to search all boats of suspicious character descending in the river at this time. The men gathering on the island thought the expedition, according to Blenner Hassett, when they were being recruited, was going to be just just against Spain, that they were going to go down and take Spanish lands. 
when they realized that the United States militia was getting involved and word of the boats being taken in Marietta, most of the men on the island at this point in time deserted. So this left Blennerhassett with almost no men at all. The timeline for leaving Blennerhassett Island is moved up. They can see the militia forming across the river. They leave under the cover of darkness without a number of the people they are waiting on from Pittsburgh and from the rest of the region. It's go time. The militia would take over Blennerhassett Island after he left. Harmon Blennerhassett would actually never return to Blennerhassett Island, his Eden on the river, as it was called. That night, December 10th, 1806, they set off. As they make their way past Cincinnati, Louisville, the papers are claiming things like Mexico is about to be attacked. There's 20,000 men coming down south. There's hysteria. Blennerhassett meets up with Burr and his small team of volunteers at the Cumberland River, and they continue south. David Stewart walks us through how Burr's plans go awry. He, he never really did say, this is what we're going to do, because I think it was just this continuing improvisation. The expedition leaves from Blennerhassett Island in uh, the Ohio River across from Parkersburg, West Virginia. It's a big disappointment to him that a bunch of the boats don't ever show up and a bunch of the people don't show up who had said they would. About 100 people, uh, men, set off. Some have come down from Pittsburgh and the rest are from that Ohio, Kentucky area. Burr rushes off to try to get Andrew Jackson to pitch in. Uh, he clearly is counting on Jackson, who does control the, one of the militia uh, units in Tennessee, but Jackson doesn't join up. Uh, so Burr joins the expedition and, you know, they stop at a couple of other army bases and, you know, at forts and, and, and Burr tries to recruit those guys and eh, that doesn't work either. So by the time he gets to Natchez, it's a dud. Um, he's, he's still got his hundred guys. He clearly can't mount much of an expedition. And then he gets the news that Wilkinson isn't coming. And that's the final stake through the heart. I mean, he's, yeah. it, it's not going to work and he knows it. Burr's captured. He and Blennerhassett and others are jailed in, in Alabama. Burr's going to be tried for treason against the United States. The most recent vice president is going to be tried for treason for raising arms against his own country. It's a scandal. And the first trial of the century in the United States is pending. He is charged with treason, ultimately. Uh, and that is at the insistence of Jefferson. Um, you know, I've been talking about how Jefferson was sort of low-key in his response. But once they've arrested Burr, and, you know, a grand jury in Natchez hears the evidence and lets him go. But they arrest him in, in the forests of South Alabama and haul him back to the East Coast. Suddenly, Jefferson becomes quite vindictive, yeah. and he wants to put him on, on trial. Uh, and treason carries the penalty of hanging. Uh, so if Burr gets convicted, he's going he's gonna to swing. Uh, and Jefferson quarterbacks this uh, prosecution. And although it's clear to me that Jefferson outmaneuvered Burr up until this point, from here on in, Jefferson does nothing but stub his toes, and Burr is a much better lawyer than Jefferson was. Uh, treason charges are hard to make stick, and that's on purpose. Framers of the Constitution wanted it that way. They had seen the King of England used treason charges as a weapon against his opponents. So 
they had specific requirements. You had to have two proof of two overt acts of treason, and there were only two things that were overt acts of treason. One was giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Didn't have an enemy right then, so it couldn't be that. And the other had to be raising arms against the government, taking up arms against the government. And that was a hard case to make because Burr had been so sort of subtle and you could say devious or at least secretive. So when they come to the courtroom part of it and, you know, Jefferson is insisting that the case go forward, um, they have real problems. The case is going to be heard in Virginia, Richmond, actually. John Marshall, one of our greatest jurists, is, is the one to hear the case. He's the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Burr assembles this great legal team. The case is moved to Virginia, Jefferson's home state, for reasons that David will explain. But legally, it, it is a somewhat proper venue. Uh, technically, that's where Blennerhassett Island was, the staging area for this insurrection, as Jefferson alleged. Witnesses from Marietta are called in. We talked to David Stewart about why Virginia was picked and the role Thomas Jefferson, the president, played in that decision. Chief Justice Marshall, who was a, a real opponent of Jefferson's, turns out to be the presiding judge because it's in Virginia. Jefferson wants it in Virginia because he has seen these two grand juries out west, the one in Kentucky, the one in Mississippi, let Burr free. And so he doesn't trust the western grand jury. Now, most of the crime, if it was a crime, happened out there. So that's logically where the prosecution should proceed. But Jefferson wants it in Virginia. He thinks his his friend, I'm, this sounds crude, but I actually mean it, that his friends and political supporters in Virginia will, will vote the right way in a Burr trial. And there is a sort of toehold of involvement of Virginia here because Blennerhassett Island at the time um, was part of Virginia. Uh, you know, they it's now part of West Virginia, which was part of Virginia at the time. We aren't going to go into all the particulars of this treason trial of the century. You have to buy David's book, American Emperor, for that, and the rest of the birth story, including the revolution, the founding of the nation, the Hamilton duel, it's all in there. But Burr is acquitted by Chief Justice John Marshall. Somewhat on a technicality, but whatever. He would live out the rest of his life in relative obscurity, changing his name at one point. Harmon Blennerhass, on the other hand, he lost everything. Him and Margaret eventually moved back to England. They moved in with his family, but never again did they return to their beautiful home in the Ohio River. David takes us through the fallout of the fallen founding father, Aaron Burr, following his trial for treason. He did not retrieve his reputation. Um, being tried for treason is sort of a heavy, heavy load. Uh, it's a political figure decades ago who, after being acquitted, uh, said self-righteously, so where do I go to get my reputation back? And it, it's hard. And Burr was facing that. Also, he had, you know, he killed Hamilton. <laughs> it was hard to overlook that. Yeah. He tried to, he, he had tried to snocker Jefferson out of the presidency in the election of 1800. He had a lot of black marks against him, and he was viewed uh, not quite as bad as Benedict Arnold, I, I might hazard, but he, he was certainly considered someone never to be trusted, and he knew his, his career was done. The Burr conspiracy is the biggest story going in the early Republic, but it's buried in history for nearly 200 years, and, and then I started to hear about it again after what David Stewart calls euphemistically 
our recent unpleasantness at the Capitol. I got to say, uh, you know, interviewing David O. Stewart, absolute delight. Uh, he's hilarious. He's so smart and so fun. And I've been reading his books for years, and the guy is a blast. And like I said, just really one of the country's great historians. As we close the story on the Burr conspiracy and move to our second, our second story of treason, we asked David about some of the rumors that Burr was threatening to take Washington with his army. It'd be even more poorly defended than it was a few months ago. We have no standing army of any kind, but there was some talk that that could be an objective of Burr after he was kicked off the ticket by Jefferson in his re-election campaign. Well, there was an account which was never fully confirmed by someone who claimed Burr said that he was going to invade the Capitol and, and, and take all the uh, high officials of the government uh, hostage. There's no evidence that he ever prepared to do that. But that certainly sounds the same. Yeah, I mean, he's what he say, like, I could take the Capitol with 200 men or something like that. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the allegation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Our second story today is the story of Mildred Gillers. She'd better be known as Axis Sally. This Ohio-raised wannabe actress would end up becoming one of the most reviled and infamous propagandists for the Nazis. Serving as a radio personality on Reich Radio, She's broadcast across Europe, even in the United States, but aimed at the British and American soldiers and their families. We sat down with author Richard Lucas at his home in New Jersey. Richard wrote the book Axis Sally in 2011 about Mildred's story and her treason trial. She's the subject of the new movie American Traitor, The Trial of Axis Sally, just released last week. I, I really enjoyed it. Al Pacino plays Mildred's attorney in her, in her infamous treason trial back in 1949. We talked to Richard about where Mildred grew up, uh, you know, as an unremarkable middle-class existence in the early 1900s in the small towns that line Lake Erie in Northeast Ohio. She uh, was born in Portland, Maine. When her mother divorced, she ended up with a Pennsylvania dentist. He was an itinerant dentist named Robert Gillers, and he worked along the railroad that was servicing Ohio. They lived in Bellevue. They've lived in uh, various stops. Conneaut was the final stop. And as a matter of fact, her nephew, I believe, if he's still alive, was in Ashtabula now. Mildred graduates from high school in Conneaut, Ohio, on the border with Pennsylvania, and, and goes to Ohio Wesleyan University in Delaware, Ohio. Just north of Columbus, she's involved in the school's drama program, but she leaves Owu in the middle of her senior year. She follows her drama teacher to Cleveland in the early 1920s. She begins working on theater productions in Cleveland. She's an actress around the region. This impulsive decision would be a theme in her life, as Richard Lucas discusses. Her, dra her drama teacher, was married, uh, left, and he went to Cleveland. She followed him there to become an actress. So what ended up happening was she got a uh, job in department store that he found for her 
And uh, she started this pattern following unavailable men. In those days, there were a lot more theaters. So she would go on the low surf. So she would go all over the United States. She was basically a showgirl. And they would have kind of like a Ziegfeld Follies feel to it. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty, uh, and she'd do anything for publicity, anything to get her name out there. She, she wanted desperately to be an actress. She, she would have been a good publicist. Not a great actress, but a great publicist. She never does achieve that success she saw in the acting world. She's a working actress. She's traveling the country on these smaller off-Broadway productions. She lives in New York almost the entire 20s in Greenwich Village. And, and like Richard said, she would do anything for publicity. His book outlines when she once pretended to be committing suicide in, off a bridge in Camden, New Jersey. A photographer happened to just be there when the police stopped her. The paper ran a story that she's pregnant. The father wouldn't marry her. And the father was really another fellow actor, a friend, and the story's all made up. Uh, but the story, you know, the paper, papers would do this back in the day, make up these fake stories to sell news. Uh, and it all eventually got exposed. But she decides to take a trip to Germany, a trip that would change her life forever. In, around 1933, in the later, later months, she came with her mother. She saw the men, she saw the uniforms, she got into it and decided that she was going to stay there and make the ball of it. So what she did was she got involved with a woman named Clara Trask, who wrote film reviews. She would not only take care of Mrs. Trask, but she would write reviews for her. You could tell the difference between the ones written by her and the ones written by Mildred. The second thing she did was she became a personal assistant uh, for an actress named Bridget Horney. At that point, Goebbels and the Nazi party had basically assumed control by 1936, 37 of all film studios. Most of their actresses, his favorite actresses, weren't German at all. They all fled. And the ones that weren't Jewish were not star caliber. She became her personal assistant, Bridget Horney. As a matter of fact, her name pops up. If you see Glorious Bastards, the scene Quentin Tarantino, one of the actresses whose name is on index card while they're sitting around playing that game with Diane Kruger. Oh, it's such a great scene in the, in the bar. Yes. She's on that. She's on that uh, thing for her name. And uh, she was one of Gerbil's favorite actresses. Most of them were not German at all. They were, they were either Czechs or Scandinavian or English. There was one who was English. Um, so Mildred was flourishing there in a way that she hadn't in the United States until the war came. And then the war came, she could no longer, Richard Horney could no longer pay her. So what Mildred finally did was find out that she could audition for the Reichsradio. And the whole point was to keep the Americans out of the war. And Mildred signed up. She thought it was really a war between uh, communism and, and Nazis. Now, at that time, she had a boyfriend. And the boyfriend said he could not marry her if she went back to the United States. And what ended up happening was uh, that boyfriend got shipped off to the Eastern Front and was killed. She takes a job with German State Radio in 1940. They were looking for an announcer to host a show directed at Americans, but it's mostly apolitical at first. She played jazz and, and Americans weren't in the war. But that all changes after Pearl Harbor. 
Americans are advised to get out of Nazi Germany, especially by 1939-1940. Mildred always claimed that an American official took her passport from her when he found out that she had worked on German radio. This was before the U.S. entered the war. She had a boyfriend that she hoped to marry, but while she was at Reich Radio, he was sent off to the Eastern Front, and he was killed in the Nazi war with the Russians. What I really think it was that she, she finally found a bit of success in Germany. She looked past all these terrible things that they were doing because she's finally making some money. She's having a taste of fame. We played for you a, a clip of, of Midge at the mic of her actual you know radio broadcast. Richard Lucas sent us some, some great copies of those, and then we'll hear from Richard about her time at German State Radio. This is Berlin calling, and I'd just like to say that when Berlin calls, it pays to listen. When Berlin calls, it pays to listen in. Early on, it was basically jazz music interspersed with cajoling of Americans, saying you don't want your children to die. Uh, it was aimed at uh, mothers and girlfriends women in the United States and saying, do not let your children go to this war. And then as it became later and the United States entered the war, the gloves came off and it became more attacking Roosevelt, attacking Jews, attacking Britain, um, and uh, saying things like a classic one is that uh, uh, the future is going to be a red one. If Germany loses this war, there'll be a communist future. So she was, um, there was a transformation. She went from being midget to Mike. She had some of the best German musicians, jazz musicians, which was outlawed at that time in her studio. But she then transformed into this uh, propagandist. And she read the scripts of her then boyfriend, Max Otto Koschwitz, her mentor at Reichswehr. Thousands and thousands and thousands of your men now going from French North Africa via Sicily to Europe are on their last her next boyfriend is, is her producer, Max Otto Koischwitz. He's pretty high up in the Nazi hierarchy. She would have been hanging out with people like Propaganda Minister Joseph Goebbels. She's rubbing elbows with Nazi leadership at parties and events. She's in deep. I've got no sympathy for Mildred. She's there for things like the Night of the Long Knives, Kristallnacht. She's an anti-Semite. She's a Nazi propagandist, of course, so that, you know, it kind of goes without saying. Despite her excuses, I think she could have got out. She could have returned to the U.S. She decided not to. She falls in love with another married man, Max Otto Kloschwitz, and moves her way up to the top of the foreign radio personalities. Again, Mildred is hoping that she'll marry this man, that the Nazis will win the war, but neither of those work out. 1943 started. In Berlin, there was a air raid that destroyed the hospital that Kloschwitz's wife was in. She had a baby, and Mildred did not know that Koischwitz's wife was pregnant. So she um, turned on the gas, tried to kill herself. She was rescued by a friend, and she was ready to uh, do herself in. Koischwitz, even though he was no longer married, and even though he was a widower, refused to marry her, kept putting off marrying her. He promised he would, 
And that's part of what happened with her treason conviction is that had he married her, she would have been a German citizen and that uh, the government would not have been able to touch her. Good evening, women of America. Well, you know, as time goes on, I think of you more and more. I can't somehow seem to get you out of, your, out of my head. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room, thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother, who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. Perishing, losing their lives, at death, coming back home crippled, useless for the rest of their lives. For whom? For Franklin D. Roosevelt and Churchill and their Jewish cohort. So we played you another clip from, from Axis Sally. She would broadcast right up until the end of the war. Her last broadcast was only two days before the Germans surrendered. She literally went out the back door of the studio as the Soviets were coming in the front. We asked Richard about some of her more popular formats of her show. She became known by Allied soldiers as Axis Sally at this point. She and Kloschwitz, they would interview American POWs. So you listen to a lot of these interviews. Richard tells the story of a group of American POWs giving Axis Sally a carton of cigarettes. Mildred, like you know everybody else in the war back then, was a big smoker. When she opened it up, the carton was full of horse manure. She was hated by American troops. She was a traitor. They had two studios. There was one studio, which was near the Brandenburg Gate, which was the main radio house. Propaganda ministry was there, and that was in use until about 1943. After that, it, they relocated to this place outside called Königswurstenhausen, House. And it's almost in a, in a suburb. During the years 43-44, her and Koishwitz would go to American prisoner of war camps and interview prisoners right. of war. And she tried to use that as a defense for her uh, treason by saying, look, I did this to help her boys. Well, what she would do is encourage them to send the listeners to hear this person send a postcard to their mother and father. And I will um, and write to the parents and tell them that they're alive and well. And people did that. People did that left and right. And it was a lot of them. Uh, they would listen and say, I heard so-and-so, I heard so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, write to their parents. Kloischowitz would die in late 1944, before the end of the war. Mildred's on the run from the Allies for almost a year when she's captured, and they were looking for her. She's eventually extradited back to the United States. But as Richard Lucas tells us, she seemed to revel in her notoriety when she's arrested and taken back. The media coverage is big, and she seems to like it. But she would stand trial for treason in the United States. Many other radio personalities in other Allied countries that worked with the Nazis, they were executed after their trials. She had to have had this worry as well. Coming from Frankfurt to talk to the um, lady who was uh, her guard, and she said, oh, I went here, I went there. I can't imagine this is, this is happening. And she was pleased. She was pleased that people were... Uh, paying attention. Uh, she didn't like jail, but she liked the notoriety. Lord Ha Ha, William Joyce, he was tried even though he was born in the United States and hung. 
they tried to appeal and say, uh, well, this man wasn't he's a United States citizen. He was born in New York. It didn't matter. They hung him uh, because he was such a, a hated figure during the Blitz. trial was front page news. Access Sally's on the newsreels and again this trial was pretty incredible. It's tried in 1949. It's shown that she swore an oath to Hitler after Pearl Harbor. She claimed she's forced to do it. This trial is the subject of the brand new movie American Traitor. Uh, Al Pacino stars as Mildred's attorney. She faces eight counts of treason. She's the most hated person in America at the time. We aren't going to go through the entire trial. It's fascinating. You've got to buy Richard's book, Access Sally, to hear that part, but there's a link in the show notes. We did talk to Richard about the moment in the trial where Access Sally testifies on her own behalf, which as an attorney, I can tell you, rarely goes well on cross-examination. When she was under cross and she became very, she would would be strong and would say, no, I didn't do this, that it wasn't my intention. But then when she started to break down after hours and hours of cross-examination, the one thing that I really focused on was when she said, I never thought he would die. She always counted that the marriage, her being a British or a German citizen by marriage, would save her. That was what it boiled down to. Her arguments for why she did it were never really reasonable. She did say, though, that she believed that uh, she believed in I in isolationism, and that she basically had the same viewpoint of of foreign affairs as she did when uh, she left the United States. It hadn't changed. Mildred Gellers was convicted, but only on one count of treason. It was her role in a play that was done on the radio called Visions of Invasions on the eve of of D-Day. Many people were outraged. 400,000 Americans died in World War II, and this woman was the voice of Hitler the American voice of Nazi Germany. But to her lawyer's credit, although they made some mistakes in that trial, he was able to spare her the death penalty. Richard Lucas tells us about the conviction of Ohioan Mildred Gillers for treason. With all the talk about treason today, crime requires two eyewitnesses to a single act, one that she was convicted on. It was her and another actor. The point of it was convince mothers and fathers not send their children die to Normandy. And it was aimed at Britain, where men, Americans, were getting ready to, and that was found to be treasonous because it explicitly tried to change the outcome and give aid and comfort. The other things could be written off. The jury somehow came back and her sentence was, I mean, she got out after 12. Uh, she was in Algerson, West Virginia. Mildred would spend 12 years in jail in West Virginia. She's a terrible inmate the first few years. Ultimately, she converts to Catholicism, became very serious about her religion, um, and she moves back to Columbus, Ohio after jail. She lived at Our Lady of Bethlehem Convent in Columbus for many years, and she was even a tutor uh, in teaching language to students at Watterson High School. That's where my mother graduated. Many did not know her past. She even returned to Ohio Wesleyan. They knew her past 
and got her degree in 1973, which is pretty incredible. The life after that was uh, impoverished. And she was always followed by this, by this uh, cloud over her. Yeah, and it was actually a picture of her accepting her degree. It was in the paper. It was, uh, it was on the wire services. Her life after prison was working for a Catholic school. Uh, and later, she became a um, tutor at Catholic High School. She was very um, devout. Right? I talked to a lady who was a neighbor, and she was her mother was friends. She said, "I didn't, I didn't know until she got." I started getting calls. She says, I had one. As she lived out her life in anonymity here in Columbus, she's buried in a Columbus cemetery, an unmarked grave for obvious reasons. She died in 1988 at Grant Hospital at the age of 87. We asked Richard Lucas about how Mildred ended up down this road. Certainly her own anger, her racism played a role, but he also thinks her failures as an actress, her relative success in Germany played a role. But ultimately, she did decide to stay. Even if she argued that she had no choice, if she tried to leave, she would have been jailed or killed by the Nazis. Richard talks about the road she took to become a traitor. She metamorphosized. She was driven by failure. Her failure here, her resentments here, her experiences in New York drove her. I mean, the anti-Semitism that she had, she was angry about that. She came to Germany and she found that she had some success and she stayed. She felt she had a life. I don't think she intended to be treasonous. I think she left with the idea that she should have stayed out of the war. And I don't think she was looking at it from the standpoint of the victims that were. Because when you think about it, she was there 1938 in November during Kristallnacht. She didn't reflect on that at all we leave you with the story of Mildred Gellers, one story Richard told us just chilled us to the core. She had friends in Columbus and she'd always bring out this special like serving cup when they would come over. And Richard asked them about it and they, they couldn't remember, but she'd say that she got this cup the night that she met, I can't remember, and they finally said to her, it was the night she met Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, the psychotic head of the SS in Nazi Germany and the architect of the Holocaust. Mildred Gellers had tea or sat down with Heinrich Himmler. She knew more. When she was elderly, she was living in an apartment owned by the government. And every time this, this couple would come over, they were friends of hers, she would serve them in this blue cup. And she says, this, this was from the night that I met. They were trying to remember who it was. And I thought, well, it had to be Gerber's. It was the notion of Himmler, the SS chair. And that struck me before, when I wrote the book, that I had, I thought that she was probably more involved, but that nailed it for me. If you're that close where you meet Himmler, there's, there's a good chance what she knew much more than what the average person. Our book recommendation for this episode is 
David O. Stewart's American Emperor, uh, just a great book about Aaron Burr. And there's a link in the show notes to it. And David O. Stewart's so awesome. And just everything he's written is, is so quality. So thanks again to him for joining us. Uh, also, our other book recommendation is Axis Sally by Richard Lucas. You can get that on Amazon. We put a link uh, in the show notes to that as well. Really interesting story. Uh, and, and Richard really brings it to life. Really the first person to do so in, in many years. Now there's a, a movie coming out with Al Pacino, like we said, just came out last week. Uh, but we talked with David O. Stewart about his brand new book. Uh, it released here in 2021, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. I'm almost through it. Um, and just fantastic book about George Washington and, and from an angle that a lot of people uh, don't look at. He was a politician. This guy was the president, and, and he had uh, he had to play the game of politics. He's not just a, a military mastermind. Uh, and, and really, David's book takes you through the early politics of America. You've stated well what I'm trying to do in the book. Uh, I was struck by the fact others have noticed, which, you know, he not only won the four key elections in his career, he was elected commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he was elected president of the Constitutional Convention, elected first president and then re-elected. But he won all of those elections unanimously. And that was as unusual in the 18th century as it is today. I mean, who can remember somebody winning something unanimously? And I thought, well, you know, you don't get that with box tops. Um, you have to understand positioning yourself. You have to understand building your resume and your reputation. You have to understand connecting with people. And I wanted to try to unpack that phenomenon. And uh, I really think, you know, you're exactly right. We think of him as this guy on horseback who won the war and, you know, just sort of glided into the presidency. And it, it wasn't easy at all. <laughs> he had to uh, figure out how to be a politician, um, how to be an effective one. Uh, and what I think is the ultimate proof of how good he was is exactly your question, which is we don't think of him as a politician. I mean, how good is that? <laughs> <laughs> Being a politician is almost a curse word. So, you know, he managed to be the dominant force in American politics for 20 years and – Everybody th still thinks of him as this terrific guy. Thanks again to our guest, uh, Bill Reynolds, from the Ohio River Museum and from Campus Martius Museum in Marietta. So much history in, in Marietta. You can go to mariettamuseums.org to check out all the great historical attractions in Ohio's first city. And also, thank you so much to Craig Pyle, superintendent at Blennerhassett State Park, You know the island there. Uh, and you can see it's a remake of a house uh, on Blennerhassett Island, the mansion uh, where Harmon and Margaret lived and where the Burr conspiracy took off. Take a boat out there. We'll put a link in the show notes to their website. Definitely something that myself, Miss Ohio v. The World, and, and little William Henry are going to have to go do this summer, which seems like a really cool place. And again, thanks to Craig and Bill for sharing that history from the Ohio River with us. All right. Whew. We had a lot of stuff to get into this episode and well, the stuff that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. It, it was a real shame, but Thanks so much to our guests, and thank you guys for listening. Like, these are deep dives, man. I know 
I get super, super into the weeds. But that's what people seem to like is, is the context and, and all the interesting things going on around it. And I hope you learned something about the history of treason in this country. It's not something to be taken lightly, and it's not something that's easy to prove. And we've learned that in, in our recent history as well. So thank you again so much for joining us. We will see you again. It's every other Tuesday this year. Uh, thanks to our friends at Evergreen Podcast for all their help. You can go check out all their shows at evergreenpodcast.com. We'll see you guys in two weeks for episode five. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.